Hello everyone, this is The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer and we thank you once again for joining us. Despite there being no football, you have stuck with us right here on The Game Podcast and we'll do our very best to keep you informed and entertained. Of course, we are social distancing, so joining me remotely as ever, it is Gregor Robertson and today we're joined by Jonathan Northcroft. Uh, Before I speak to Jonathan, Gregor, how are you and uh, at what stage? in your push-up challenge you're at? <laughs> I'm fine, thank you. Um, I'm up to the grand old number of 43. Oh! Um, and everyone's improving, you know? There's there's like guys in their 60s that have gone from 7 to 12 or something. Uh, it's, a, it's an eclectic bunch, so uh, it's a good idea. It is a good idea, but you've gone up, what, just three? Well, no, because my first one was below that, but I didn't tell you that. Oh, okay. All right. Just checking. Just checking. All right. Well, you're doing well. Good on you. Thanks. Thanks, Um, Jonathan, I don't know if you're aware, but obviously Gregor has been doing a push-up challenge. It's a daily challenge. So if you wish to join in, I'm sure he'll uh, greatly (laughs) receive receive your membership to this push-up challenge. Um, But how are you keeping, Jonathan? I'm good, actually. I'm uh, enjoying the the wonders of homeschooling, seeing a lot of stuff from my window and and not getting getting out much. But... um, (laughs) I'm, I, it's fine. It's, it's nice having a bit more family time. Missing football, of course, but mm. um, yeah. It, so get back to me in a few weeks. It's all right at the moment. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, what we do, though, have to look forward to in the Sunday Times is uh, you've done a little, little interview, a little chat with Wayne Rooney. Yes. Um, so we've got uh, the next Wayne Rooney column coming up at the weekend. Um, he had quite a good idea this week, which was to ask um, readers to suggest a game or a tournament for him to, to review, one that he played in. Um, I won't spoil him by telling you which one uh, was chosen, but I um, spoke to Wayne this morning and um, some really fascinating stuff. Oh, OK. We look forward to that. Uh, coming up, we are reviewing some classic Premier League clashes as Match of the Day returns to your screens on Saturday night. And I'll be putting our panel to the test with some football brain teasers. So plenty is to come on this podcast. But first, it's time for this. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, Premier League clubs are living in a moral vacuum and players should be first to sacrifice salaries during the coronavirus pandemic. That's what Julian Knight, the chair of the Digital, Culture, Media and Sport Committee, thinks about teams who are taking advantage of the government's furlough scheme to relieve workers. Tottenham, Newcastle, Bournemouth and Norwich have all opted to utilise the scheme, which sees the government fit part of the bill for workers laid off due to the pandemic. Here is what Julian Knight then had to say about wealthy Premier League clubs using this scheme 
He said it sticks in the throat. This isn't what the scheme is designed for. This exposes the crazy economics in English football and the moral vacuum at its centre. Gregor, people are talking about a moral vacuum then in football. Do you feel that there is an issue here? Hell yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think um, you don't know where to start. I mean, the obvious place is with the owners and you have oligarchs and tax exiles and Gulf states. <laughs> We've got a very sort of uh, again eclectic bunch of of owners of Premier League football clubs, um, agents taking vast sums out of, out of the game. But I think we also have to say that look, football is not alone in this. Football is always the the first in the crosshairs when it comes when money is involved. And um, but we all we all see the news. We see EasyJet bosses have been paid out 177 million in bonuses, but they furloughed all their staff. Richard Branson has been in the news quite a lot. He's a billionaire and, and he's looking for a government bailout for, for Virgin Atlantic. Um, and even like, I got I got I started thinking this week, re- closer to home, my my fiancé has been furloughed. She works for a a, a fashion house uh, with a turnover probably similar to a club like Everton. Um, decent profits. And they've completely shut down. This is a, this is, this, it's something that is, you know, there's no, there's very few companies and businesses that are escaping it, um, and all the everything's shut down. The business is completely shut down, and so my my fiance and all the staff have been furloughed. And really, I, I I'm not sure what the difference is. I, I understand that footballers are very public faces. Uh, they earn huge money, but ultimately they're employees, um, and it does stick in the in the throat a little bit when you when you think that. Football clubs are are furloughing staff, uh, and they're potentially looking at losing some some of their money. While footballers haven't come to a decision yet, or collectively come to an agreement of what they're going to do. I'm sure it's going to happen, but uh, again, football is not alone in this. Um, and there's a lot of questions about about what's going to happen with the money that footballers give up because if if clubs have have already furloughed their staff. Um, it's no longer a case of footballers saying we'll give up 20% of our earnings and that'll help everyone stay on the wage bill. Um, it's a very complicated issue and I think you know, I think football is always the first thing in the crosshairs in this sort of instance. Mm. Uh, it's an interesting point Gregor makes, Jonathan, uh, about the furlough scheme. Obviously, a lot of clubs, as we've already mentioned, have, have taken the opportunity to, to use it. Um, but should they be using it already before, say, some of these player wage cuts that have been suggested that should be happening, which could go towards paying some of these non-playing staff members first before then engaging in, in the furlough scheme. So I think Greg sets it out quite well, actually, that I think there is um, a sort of moral vacuum in, 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 in football. There's a moral vacuum probably at the heart of, of business. And as Gregor points out, um, Richard Branson, EJET um, aren't behaving particularly well at this time, the banks aren't behaving particularly well. If you look at uh, reluctance to, to give businesses loads that the government have told them to give. Business as a whole is being shown up at a time like this. It should be different because the point about football is something more than just a business. Football is telling us it's more than a game, it, it, that it means something to people, that it's, it's got a special place in people's lives. Well, it's, it's time it started acting like that. It's time it started thinking that it draws its strength and its power from the communities, from the fans that it represents, 
from connected people and that because of that it's a responsibility not to just behave like cynical business because once it starts doing that then it stops being magical it stops being a game it just becomes numbers we don't want to 50,000 people don't sit there on a Saturday watching bank accounts come down but that's the way football's behaving at the moment and yes footballers should be taking wage cuts I do believe that but I think first and foremost the owners should be up money I have little faith in the PFA I'll be honest but I do see where they're coming from to an extent on wage cuts because they're asking well what are the owners doing what are the club accounts saying now you've got Mike Ashley asking Newcastle um, to, to use the furlough scheme. My cash is worth two billion pounds. This is where football's got to be careful because if it's just going to behave like any other business, then it stops being that magical thing. And mm. I hope that people remember what how certain clubs and some people have behaved during this time because the next football restarts and it tries to sell us, or certain clubs, people try and sell us that it's this dream. We've got to remember, acted at this time. Um, and I'd hope that it is borne in mind and that those have acted well are credited for it, but those that, that, that don't, we kind of see through cynicism a little bit when it comes back. Like, I, I absolutely agree. I think the one thing we have to acknowledge is that this government scheme had to be one size fits all. Because if you, you know, you could not imagine, it wouldn't have worked otherwise. You couldn't imagine means testing every, every business that wanted support at this time. And also, you know, Johnny's absolutely right, but that was a the idea about football being magical at the top level of the game. That's a facade now. Th- those days are over. I think <laughs> I think this is illuminating that fact, and and we should remember. But I think if we really, if we're being honest with ourselves, I think we know that 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 was a facade. That those days are long gone. But it's interesting. I mean, Johnny, you mentioned uh, that the bonus that Daniel Levy earned, and this was following the stadium, obviously with with Tottenham moving into their new stadium, which came obviously seven months late. Do you bulk in a way at the fact that he accepted that multi-million pound bonus and now puts, we've now found Tottenham in this situation where they're furloughing their non-playing staff. Um, If you actually look on Twitter, uh, I did look the other day, and there was a couple of tweets that Tottenham sent out and a lot of responses were simply, pay your staff, pay your staff, pay your staff. I mean, I personally, when I see the amount of money that Daniel Levy has made from a from a stadium that took so long to build, the fact that he's earned money out of that and hasn't thought, if I just put that back into the club, it might help us a little bit. Just tie us over for a month or two. You're right, Natalie. I, I, I agree. I mean, we're talk- the, the staff they're talking about furloughing, a lot of them are going to be pretty low paid. It's not going to save them that much money, as it were. It's going it's to be a million, two million pounds or whatever. Um, which in their scheme of things, in the scheme of Daniel Levy's bonus, I think he has deferred some of it, but in the scheme of, of, of how much money he's made and, and is making at Tottenham Hotspur because he owns shares as well, it's nothing. And in, 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 in the scale of the £170 million profits, it's nothing. I've got no problems with, in a way, in another business doing it because business is business, but football, is, it, it pretends to be something different. That's the point. They market it as something different. Spurs, you know, to and all that sort of stuff. They, they, they market themselves as different. And I don't blame them. The fans want it to be something different. They want Tottenham to be about glory. Football fans want their clubs to represent something different in their lives. So it can't behave this, surely. 
Well, it was mentioned obviously about the PFA and their responsibility. Talks are ongoing between themselves and the Premier League and the EFL, but it appears they have hit a bit of a deadlock. The talks were described as calm, but PFA Chief Executive Gordon Taylor is pushing for a joint agreement on wage deferrals, understood to be up to 50% for the highest earners. At the same time, the PFA has advised players in the lower divisions not to sign any requests from their clubs to accept wage cuts before receiving legal advice from the union the situation may well be different for Premier League clubs now Gregor as an ex-player do you trust that the PFA are actually doing the right thing and have their players best interests at heart in this situation the one thing you can always say about the PFA among many (laughs) is that yes they have the players interests at heart um that's their fundamental purpose um and the thing the other thing you have to say is that and I have experience of this is that the wheels have always turned painfully slowly within the PFA, like in every aspect of of, the, of its functioning, and this has been no different. So, where we you'd hope it would be a proactive union at this moment in time, and and have come to some sort of uh, collective agreement earlier than this and quicker than this, it's no surprise to me that it hasn't. Um, I think you know something will will be worked out in the coming days. I'm sure. Um, but and it is also worth acknowledging again that this is not straightforward. You know, the, their members encompass Manchester United and Macclesfield Town, so that there's players there who are on three hundred fifty thousand pounds a week, and players that are on genuinely on three hundred fifty pounds a week. So it's not like a standardised one one fits all in this instance of collective action, saying everyone's going to take a cut across the board, because it can't be. Um, and then, as Johnny's alluded to, we need to ascertain what the money's. If it's being deferred, then what? With what purpose? If the if, if football clubs, if their owners, their their employers, are already taking government funds, so and is there? If it's being cut, or if there's going to be a fund, then where is that money going to? Going to where's it going to be spent? Who's that going to be to the benefit of? Because I think there should be something. It shouldn't just be the players defer twenty percent of the wages. And they get it back at a later date when football restarts. There should be something now. It might be a much smaller percentage that is creating a fund. It's a hardship fund essentially. That's that's the other thing that the PFA is. PFA have vast reserves, and it should be a hardship fund for players. And there's going to be players in the coming months, I'm sure, who need it, who need help because they might fall out of contract. They might be playing for clubs that go into serious financial difficulty. I'm sure all the you know I think all of this has been worked out and as I say the PFA never move quickly so uh, I wouldn't be surprised it's taken taken this long for something to to materialise. Just personally for you, Gregor, have the PFA helped you in any way? Not in your professional experience when you were playing. Yes, I played for uh, Rotherham United. I forget the year this was, but uh, the club went into administration and. Uh, the the club asked us to to defer a significant percentage of wages, and the PFA came in and and negotiated on our behalf. And I think actually they they essentially covered the the the, the, the they made up the difference so that we didn't we weren't out of pocket. They basically gave a loan to Rotherham United. Obviously, there's no no possibility of them doing this on such a large scale now, but they've done this on n- numerous occasions, and they also almost entirely funded my my journalism degree so you know the pfa has a lot of a lot of strengths to it it's just the wheels move so so slowly 
and they have one man at the helm who is, is basically his, his, his personal fiefdom, and it has been for almost forty years. Uh, you know, if you if it is brought into the sort of into the twenty first century, and there's a new leader at the helm, then the PFA can be a real power for good in football. Sounds as though you've had some really good experiences then of, of the PFA. Jonathan, just lastly on this subject, I mean, I, I'm finding this all very bizarre that we're still waiting for that first Premier League club to announce that their players have decided to take the lead themselves and uh, pick up a pay cut, let's say. I know some of the management staff at Bournemouth, as they have at Brighton, have announced that they will take significant pay cuts. But we've seen in the Championship, Leeds and both Birmingham announcing that they're going to take wage deferrals. Uh, I was hearing that even my club, Brentford, are in discussions about taking pay cuts and they actually would be the first club to actually take a pay cut, not a wage deferral, which is obviously slightly different. Does it not surprise you that actually the Premier League, the, the the top league in this country, earning them vast amounts of money that it does, is not making, well, is not taking a lead in this when it comes to the players. It does a bit. I mean, when Juventus and when when Barcelona um, took their action, I thought that, that that maybe one of one of the big clubs here would follow. Maybe that will happen in the next couple of days. Um, I think Gregor's point about the PFNI, you know, it does seem to be. A slow-moving organisation, um, so that that might be one of the issues why we haven't got here sooner. But outside of that, I, I would have liked uh, to have seen a group of players at a club somewhere get together and, and take some kind of um, decision, some kind of gesture together. I suppose it's it's part of where we are with football. There's a lot of a lot of agents are having their input um, and. I do find that in general, players compare themselves to what's happening elsewhere. So if other clubs or, or colleagues or friends aren't doing it, then um, they'll think, well, why, why should we be the first? I'd expect that once one does, then others, others will follow. But um, it is a bit disappointing that, that no, nobody in the Premier League has got together and, and taken a on this. And, and if players did take a deferral or, or even a cut, you know, it, it'd be nice for them to help players lower down it. And everyone thinks about the 70 grand a week average in Premier League. There's some players at the you know, National League, League 2, League 1 level that will really be struggling because of this. Not just because of the low salaries they've got, but... A lot of them are, are on incentivised contracts, goal bonuses, appearance bonuses become very important at that level and of course there's none of that. So I'd like to see players doing something to help their own as well and I know that's what the union's there for um, but it, it doesn't seem to always move quickly uh, in, in that aspect and it'd be nice for maybe players to just unilaterally decide to do that and make the gesture. Yeah, it's a situation we will continue to monitor here at the Times of course. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, it's time for a quiz now. Bill Edgar for The Times Online this week has been testing our knowledge of footballers' real first name. For example, Tammy Abraham's real first name isn't Tammy. It is, of course, Gregor, do you know? <clears throat> uh, <laughs> no. Don't worry, don't worry. I, I, won't, I won't ask you to guess, but it's Kevin, if you didn't know. Okay. Likewise, Harry Maguire isn't Harry. <clears throat> Jonathan, do you know his first name? <clears throat> Evan? <laughs> he's a Jacob guess. he's called Jacob, Jacob. If, yeah, yeah you wouldn't have thought it would you yeah he's Jacob but for some reason goes by the name of Harry so we're going to play a little game of who am I today I'm going to ask Gregor and Jonathan to identify footballers from a list of their ex-teammates so for example if I gave you this one and this is just an example mm. I played with Des Walker Wes Morgan and played under Chris Wilder. Mm. Now, of course, some of you might be struggling, but if I gave you a clue of he likes a press up, we'd all know it's it's Gregor <laughs> Robertson. Uh, there we go. Me. All right, <laughs> all right. So we're, we all we know what we're doing, don't we? So Gregor, I'm going to come to you first. Your question is: I played with David Beckham, the Brazilian Ronaldo, Dimitar Berbatov, and Yossi Benayoun. Hmm. Who could that be? God. <laughs> Beckham, Brazilian Ronaldo. It's tough. It's tough. I mean, I'm Any stumped. ideas? Would you like a clue? Go on then. I'll give, you a, I'll give you a clue then. I played with Beckham and Ronaldo, but never played for Real Madrid. Does that help? Mm. Okay. No. I'll give you another. All right. I'll give you another clue. <laughs> I played with Berbatov at Tottenham and Ben Ayun at Liverpool. No? Nothing? You said the Brazil- Brazilian Ronaldo, right? I did. How about I tell you that this player was a striker? <laughs> I know. It's tough. To be fair, it's tough. It is tough. How about I say he is his country's leading goal scorer? And they always go on about never mm. replacing him. Who do who does? This country. This country, yeah. <laughs> Jonathan, do you have any ideas? I think so. I was gonna say Michael Ooh. Owen. But... No. no. No, not Michael Owen. I... Go on, Jonathan, who do you think it is? Robbie Keane. It is Robbie Keane. Oh, hey. oh very good. <laughs> Yeah, of course, Robbie Keane played with Beck's LA Galaxy, Brazilian Ronaldo at Inter Milan, Berbatov at Spurs, and obviously Yossi Benayoun at Liverpool. Okay, Jonathan, here's your question. I played with Sergio Aguero, David Silva, Frank Lampard, Nigel de Jong, and Martin Petrov. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm, mm. 
The answer to these usually Marcus Ent, but it's not on this occasion, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it should be. It should be. He should have done. <laughs> so I'll just quickly remind you the players. It's Sergio Aguero, David Silva, Frank Lampard, Nigel de Jong and Martin Petrov. Uh, he played in the Premier League for two clubs, but never for Manchester City. Oh, I was going to say Patrick oh. Vieira, but it's obviously not. <laughs> oh. I, I suppose, Gregor, you're just out, are you, already? You're not even trying. Uh, I'm thinking, but that doesn't mean I'll get oh, okay. it. <laughs> okay. Well, I can tell you, like Robbie Keane, this footballer was a striker. Or is a striker. Mm, is there a Chelsea nothings. connection somewhere? Well, there may well be a Chelsea connection, think? yes. <laughs> <laughs> what I can tell you as well is, unlike Robbie Keane, this player has won the World Cup. Oh, wow. I was about to say Nicholas Anelka, and of course he missed it. So, mm. oh, How about, uh, I'll tell you there's two clubs in England, were Liverpool and Chelsea. Torres? That's right. Yeah, it was, Gregor. <laughs> Why do we... Open goal, that one, in the end. I know it was. It was a bit easy at the end. But just to tell everyone, Fernando Torres played with Sergio Aguero at Atletico, as he did with David Silva and Martin Petrov. Obviously, Frank Lampard was at Chelsea. Nigel de Jong at AC Milan is who he played with. So that was pretty good. Uh, Gregor, you might have to brush up on your players. Yeah, I'm going to have to start studying Bill's quizzes, I think. I think so. I think so. Uh, well done, Jonathan. 2-0. That's a good... That's good. Oh, wow. We like that. Gregor must be really... I'm so bad at quizzes. Gregor must be really good. Says a lot about me. Sorry, Gregor. I never win this. Never <laughs> oh, do you know what? Let's let's move on then. And we've got some exciting news for football fans on Saturday night because Match of the Day is back. Sadly, there's still no action to review, but instead Alan Shearer will be centre stage on Match of the Day as he selects three classic Premier League clashes to rewatch and review. So we're going to have our own mini version of Match of the Day here on the podcast in a moment. But first, do we think Shearer's just picked three games where he scored a lot of goals, Gregor? I'm sure he'll slip at least one in. Where he's, uh, <laughs> where he's, he scored either an absolute screamer or you know a hat trick or something, but he, uh, you know he can't be he can't be too self-absorbed when he's doing this. Surely. Well, you'd like to think he's uh, impartial, <laughs> but you never know. Um, okay, so I've asked you both to come up with three Premier League games that uh, you'd like to go back and rewatch if you could. So, Jonathan, let's start with your three. Oh, it's a, it's a really good exercise actually because it's it is a great <laughs> nostalgia thing. Um, I mean. There's a few that really come to mind. There's one that, um, you know, Liverpool 4-3 against Newcastle, I think always comes in the classic games lists. Tottenham 3, Man United 5, I think when Spurs were 3-1 up. But I not any of those games. Similarly, City 3-2 to QPR. So I've gone for three games were actually reported on. I think that's probably the best way for me to do it. So I've gone for Liverpool 5, Arsenal 1 in 2014. Uh, Newcastle 4, Arsenal 4 um, in 2011, Newcastle having been 4 0 down, and Leicester 2, West Ham 2 in um, 2016. Um, more for the drama than for the classic football involved. But I think those three games, in terms of being there, are just ones that uh, I think stay with me, like the kind of the, the tension and, and, and the feeling of, of, of being there for forever, really. Curious to know then, tell us a bit more about the Liverpool-Arsenal game then. 
I, I mean, that, for, for, for those that might not remember, that was tw- we're talking 2014, Brendan Rodgers, Liverpool, um, start, at the start of that incredible surge they had, it almost took them to the title. And I was at that game, it was early February, Liverpool were actually eight points behind Arsenal at that time. Arsenal were the league leaders. It's, it's easy to forget that, that, that you know, you, you sort of think of Liverpool almost winning the title, so they must have been the better side. They were, they were fourth, they were nowhere at that time. And the first 20 minutes of that game were just almost like nothing I've seen. Um, Liverpool were, were 4 0 up after 19 minutes. Um, they could have scored six or seven. Luis Suarez hit the post with us just unbelievable volley that would have probably gone down as top three Premier League goals of all time. And it was just the way this young Liverpool side with Suarez, Sturridge, Sterling, with Coutinho pulling the strings just ripped, absolutely ripped Arsenal apart time and time again. Um, we're playing with, without any kind of thought in their heads other than let's score the next one. Real pure attacking football. And it was a moment, I think, that, that, that changed everything. Arsenal were never the same again. I think that, that hastened the end of the Wenger era and it propelled people like Suarez and Coutinho to a completely different level and Sturridge and Sterling and Jordan Henderson was incredible that day and it was just that feeling of, um, it, I, I, I guess it must be like a sensational um, heavyweight boxing fight when you just see a round where one fighter just obliterates the other and, and it's, it's, it's sort of visceral and um, incredible. It was a lunchtime kickoff as well and there's something about the fact that we those lunchtime kickoffs, you're always a bit sleepy at the beginning. It always feels like you've you've just rolled out of bed, and that first 20 minutes was just the ultimate kind of wake up at the start of a game. Um, <laughs> ended up being 5-1, um, but so many sort of bits of that match sort of stick in the mind, Un- unforgettable. So, of the three that you've chosen, Jonathan, is there one that particularly stands out? Well, yeah, I mean, look, look, Newcastle four, Arsenal four is incredible. I think it's the only time my club's ever come back from four 0 down. And, and the thing about that one was, you know, Newcastle are, are, are funneled down, not, not just at half time, but with 22 minutes to go. And Arsenal just <laughs> had one of their very Arsenal implosions. That, that was unforgettable. But the one I would actually pick above all else would be, would be Leicester 2, West Ham 2. Four games to go in the title season. I think we all waited for that moment Leicester were going to slip up. Miracle can't happen. And with four games left, they're still in charge of the title race. But that game against West Ham was the moment where I think they stared uh, the cliff edge, uh, stared at the cliff edge and didn't topple over it. Three minutes to go, 2-1 down. Vardy's going to be spended for the run in the last couple of games against Chelsea and Manchester United. West Ham are going to win the match. And there was a feeling in the stadium that this is it, the is over. Um, they're going to topple over the brink. And then the twist in the tail, which I think is what really makes a game unforgettable, where um, in the in, in stoppage time, Leicester just uh, went upfield last time. Schlupp was barely touched. Andy Carroll, John Moss evened things up by giving a, a penalty. Leonardo Aguilar scored in the final moments. And the emotion in the stadium, the kind of light switching back on, uh, there were people in tears. Um, was just incredible and so much about that game was or so much about the season I suppose was unforgettable but that game almost had all the drama rolled in one um, and uh, as an occasion that, that's just burned in my mind and it always will be I can understand that come on then Gregor let's hear your top three well I think you, there have to be games that you you kind of obviously I 
I wouldn't have been reporting at them, uh, not having been doing this job for as long. Um, but you have to have watched them, I think. And I was determined, actually, like Johnny, to get a Leicester game, and that was the most thrilling season I can ever remember. And the Man City, the game against Man City when they won three one, and like Mares broke away and scored. That scored. That was another game where you can have remembered and you thought, "Crikey, they might they might do this year." Um, and the, the Liverpool four three game. I was twelve. I don't think I even had Sky, so I can't. I'm, they're they're not in them, but they're they were very close. So I think the first one has to be uh, Arsenal four four, um, Arsenal against Spurs four all in two thousand and eight. Um, Bentley, remember David Bentley? He scored an absolutely mm-hmm. outrageous volley. He kind of teed it up for himself and volleyed it from about forty yards. Um, and then out thereafter, it kind of looked like Arsenal were going to run away with it. And I think. Darren Bent scored after Almunia fumbled. Then Jermaine Genus scored a cracker with his left foot from outside the box off the post. And then right at the death, uh, Luka Modric, another volley off the post. And it kind of was like time stood still when it fell, came back towards Aaron Lennon. And he he finished it home to get to four all and kind of right at the death and ran off doing a windmill celebration. That kind of pure glee. You can't control yourself. So... I thought that was a classic. And I remember watching it. You have to remember, you know, remember where you were and stuff. So I remember watching that game. Um, and I think some of the battles between Man- Manchester United and Arsenal, I've gone for the one where in, when Roy Keane and Patrick Vieira kind of squared up in the tunnel, Keane defending Gary Neville. Um, I think it was it was 4-2 to, to Manchester United, the game. But that era, you know, Manchester United had, had Roy Keane, Paul Scholes, Ryan Giggs, Ronaldo, Rooney. Arsenal had Lundberg, Pires, Vieira, Henri, Bergkamp. I think that was the pinnacle of of the Premier League era, really, essentially. Um, and I think in that game, Sylvester got sent off with 20 minutes to go and, and Manchester United were 3-2 up. Uh, and they were kind of hanging on for dear life. And then John O'Shea scored the most un-John O'Shea goal ever. He, he, he lobbed Almunia with his left foot to kind of seal it right at the death. Um, so that was it. And I, I I know the last one's obvious, but it has to be the, the Manchester City against QPR. I go in, oh, moment. It was... I, you know, I don't, we'll never see that again. And I think... I was watching, I just went back and watched that kind of final goal beforehand before we came on. And uh, just the little moments like Balotelli you know, holding the ball up and falling to the floor and scrambling across the ground to hook the ball into the path of Aguero. Aguero taking a touch where most people would panic and just shoot, hit it, at, hit it try and hit the target. He took a touch beyond the kind of flailing defender. And then the, the coolness personified under pressure to, to hammer it in at the near post. And the scenes, yeah, that was just that's the best moment in Premier League history. So I think that 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 game has to be number one. Mm, yeah, and I think a lot of people would echo that as well, Gregor. And um, the thing is, we asked on Twitter if there was one game that could be in your top three. What would uh, that be? And plenty have sent in their suggestions. So thank you for those that have done that. Ron is a Stoke fan. Predictably, he's gone for a Stoke game. Stoke 6, Liverpool 1, need I say any more, says Ron. Uh, Matthew Beige says uh, Middlesbrough 8, Manchester City 1, please. That's what he would like to uh, see again. Uh, Clive Price and Daniel Rees both went for West Brom 5, Manchester United 5 in 
Sir Alex Ferguson's last game. Um, also, Lorenzo has mentioned the Arsenal-Reading match, where Reading were 4-0 up, practically out of sight, and then Arsenal came back into the game, went on to win it 7-5. Uh, also, <laughs> notable mention for Liverpool against Newcastle in 96, with Collymore closing in. And Martin Hardy has written a piece for the Times today on that classic 4-3 match, if you would like to relive it. It's been nice to have that little trip down memory lane. It's all given us a bit of nostalgia and uh, I think we'll all be looking forward to the return of football when that will be. But that is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to Jonathan as well. You may find yourself with some time on your hands in the coming weeks. So do remember you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. And remember, we asked Jonathan at the start of this pod about Wayne Rooney. Well, this Sunday, Rooney Revisits is the series that starts in the Sunday Times. So check that one out. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search the Times subscription for more information. And we will be back on Monday for The Game Podcast. Have a good weekend. Most importantly, stay safe. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.